Well, I wonder this morning if you've ever made a promise you didn't keep. <laughs> or maybe you made a promise that you have yet to, to fully fulfill. Or maybe recently someone's made a promise to you that they haven't followed through yet on. In preparation for this morning uh, with the theme of uh, the uh, promise, uh, the theme of Advent of promise this morning, I, I googled a variety of phrases this week revolved around promises and breaking of promises and just looking for different surveys and kind of what the world kind of thinks about promises. And they, I kind of gathered a lot of factoids together, but none of them were really usable for the intro for this morning. <laughs> but what did strike me was how many broken promises are around us everywhere. Spouses, families, friends, companies, employers, employees, coworkers, Politicians, athletes, celebrities, broken promises are all around us. Sometimes these promises are broken due to forgetfulness. Sometimes they're just an inability to fully do what you're saying you're trying to do. Sometimes it's outright negligence. But in the midst of all these broken promises, I want us to focus our attention this morning on one who is able to perfectly carry out everything he says. He is never forgetful, and he always has those who are his best interests in mind. So in, in this Advent season, I want to take this, this morning to try to encourage our hearts, help us to worship our Heavenly Father as we reflect on some of the promises that he has made regarding the first Advent of Christ and worship him for his faithfulness in carrying those out. So to this morning, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the Advent uh, of looking in the Old Testament by looking at several prophecies and promises in the book of Micah this morning. Uh, so please turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Micah 5, um, or you can pull it up on your smartphone app. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please go back. There's some on the back table as well. Feel free to go up and grab one. It'd be, I just want you to have the Word of God in front of you this morning. Um, if you don't remember exactly where Micah is, if you flip to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably land in Psalms. Take a big chunk, you might land in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Keep going, you'll have Daniel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Keep going. Give you a minute. As, we, as you are looking and finding Micah in your Bibles this morning, it's not something we typically run to, is some of the, the um, Old Testament minor prophets. Um, there's uh, something I want you to keep in mind as we look at this passage this morning. Uh, there's going to be a lot of promises made in Micah 5 for us this morning. Um, there's the big one. There's a coming ruler. He's going to be full of global majesty. He's going to bring security and peace. There's also going to be some smaller promises made in Micah 5. So as we go through this morning, um, I don't know what every one of your circumstances are here this morning. And so as we go this morning, I want you to identify a promise in this passage that is for you that is impacting you in the circumstances that you are in this morning. Whether that's something that could help you in a struggle, or whether it's just uh, an answer, or you're seeing the, the Lord fulfill a promise, uh, and it sparks praise in your heart. Uh, jot it down, make a mental note of it, because um, we're going to come back to it here um, in the conclusion. So with that in mind, will you please stand for the reading of uh, God's word? And I think I said Micah 5. We're actually going to start in Micah 4, 9. Uh, just to give a little more context for our passage in Micah 5. Starting in Micah 4, 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, 
Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So before uh, we dive into some of these Advent promises, I want to provide a little bit more context around what was going on in Micah 4, and it'll help us understand Micah 5 a little bit more as well. Um, Ryan did a little bit of this, uh, so I'm not going to cover too much of what he covered, but just as a reminder. Um, so at this time, we see in verses 9, 11, and verse, uh, of chapter 5, verse 1, we see some of the distresses of the people um, being described there. Uh, they are crying out. They are kingless. They are in pain. They're writhing in agony as a woman in labor. Uh, the people are being exiled. They're being taken away. The foreign nations are gloating about intentionally profaning uh, the temple of God, uh, intentionally looking in on the holy places of, the sanctuary, of God's sanctuary. And we see a judge being struck on the cheek, which is a sign of humiliation. So what's going on? So over the span of the previous 50 to 60 years before Micah writes this, around probably around 700 BC, four different Assyrian kings have been uh, attacking uh, God's people in Israel. Um, in the process, the Assyrians have uh, destroyed the entire northern kingdom of Israel. They've destroyed entire cities and towns. Uh, the northern kingdom doesn't exist anymore. The kings are gone. And of those people who uh, didn't die by the sword, a lot of them, uh, the Assyrians took them in, back into Assyria as exiles. They then uh, brought Assyrians and then planted them in God's kingdom, which is where we get uh, some of the half-breeds, uh, as they were called, the Samaritans in Jesus' time. These in intermingling of the Assyrians um, and the Israelites. Now, many commentators contend that uh, Micah 5 uh, that we're looking at here this morning was probably written as Sennacherib, uh, which is one of those kings of Assyria, uh, was attacking the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is after the northern kingdom has been wiped out. Uh, the southern king, is, or the, the king of, uh, of Assyria, is coming into the southern kingdom of Judah, is attacking um, and potentially uh, attacking Jerusalem or being prepared to attack uh, Jerusalem. And we see this uh, described in 2 Kings um, 18 and 19. But for Micah, this invading Assyrian uh, army is more than just a rival nation-state. They have a greater purpose behind it all. You see, at this time, the Israelite leaders and the wealthy were morally corrupt, and they were rejecting God's commands. Micah describes this moral corruption in Micah 2, Micah 3, but the people are debauched. They are unjust, worshiping false gods, coveting, stealing, Oppressing the poor. They hate good and they love evil. The imagery that Micah uses here is graphic. The rich are tearing the skin from the poor. They are tearing muscle from bone. God sees these heinous acts. He sees his people worshiping false gods. And through Micah proclaims the invading army for what it is. God's sovereign judgment on Israel, his people. But like Micah, or like Isaiah, Micah is not just prophesying God's judgment and downfall due to their disregard for his commands. He is also proclaiming hope amidst the devastation. Despite the fact that they've been ignoring God's commands and spitting on his very face through their greed and corruption and decadence, the great I Am still has a plan for salvation. 
He's going to redeem his people, he says. There is a future deliverance. We see that at the end of verse 10 and 12 and 13. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Verse 12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They being those invading armies. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And then he tells his people, arise and thresh. Verse 2, but this is a sharp contrast to all the other despair and devastation that he has uh, previously mentioned. The Hebrew word here is, is a sharp contrast. God, the great I am, he's going to raise up for himself a ruler who will be great and will again bring peace and security to his people. Sounds pretty great, right? In the, in the face of an invading army, when is, this coming? when is this ruler coming, Micah? When is he coming? Tomorrow? You can hear the people of Israel calling out. Before we answer that question, let's look at a couple of the ways that Micah describes who this ruler is going to be. There in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. So the first thing we see is that this ruler is to be from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is a small little town, a couple uh, hours walk south from Jerusalem, probably about a, maybe an hour's drive, probably less than an hour's drive today in a car, not that far. Uh, Ephrathah was an old name for the district where Bethlehem lay. And looking in Genesis and Ruth, we see that these terms are uh, essentially uh, interchangeable. Uh, why does Micah mention both here? Well, it's possible that he wanted to make sure that the Bethlehem mentioned in Joshua 19, Bethlehem of Zebulun, is not being referred to. He wants to make sure he's clear on which Bethlehem is being mentioned. But I think it's more likely that the two names are part of a recurring theme that we're going to see throughout Micah 5 here this morning. This is an allusion to King David. Now, as you recall, David was described as a, as a man after God's own heart. He was the gold standard for what an Israelite king should be. The last several kings in both Israel and Judah had not lived up to the example that King David had set. And so the people are longing again for a king that would be like King David. Bethlehem even then was known as the city of David. That was the only thing it was really known for. King David had come there. Using both Bethlehem and Ephrathah here is, an, is a double allusion to David that we see, uh, for example, used in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Using both names here was a way of emphasis and highlighting the correlation between King David and this future ruler that was to come. The second thing we see is the ruler would have humble beginnings. Bethlehem here is described as too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is uh, small in both significance and size. They said, Bethlehem was not known for anything other than King David. And King David was 300, 400 years before this. Bethlehem was a small and lowly town. It was so small that it was not mentioned at all in Joshua in the listing of the hundreds of towns. And it was not mentioned at all as helping Nehemiah in Nehemiah 11. Yet whatever Bethlehem lacked in the eyes of the world, it was perfect for the Lord's plans. Uh, commentator Bruce Waltke puts it this way. The Lord using Bethlehem highlights that I am, which is the, the phrase that Micah uses throughout for the Lord God, that I am is able to draw from smallness the greatest things, the most prestigious men. In contrast to the proud and powerful clans of Judah, Bethlehem was little and small and insignificant. How like Israel's God to choose the weak and the lowly in the eyes of men to shame the proud and clothe himself in glory. This, of course, brings to mind 1 Corinthians 1, chapters, or verses 27 and 28, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. 
by having his ruler, the Messiah, into this world without pomp and fanfare in a little town that is too insignificant to even be listed among the towns of a nation, the Lord was ensuring that no one can boast that they had that. With these humble beginnings, the greatest ruler that would be coming from God would be similar to King David's humble beginnings. The youngest son in a family, a shepherd boy. The third thing we see, Micah explains here, is the ruler will come for God. Now the connotation there, from you shall come forth for me, our strong emphasis of God's sovereignly working everything according to his plan. God chose Bethlehem. It did not earn this through any merit. And the phrase, for me, is this ruler will come for God, the great I am. This ruler will come to fulfill God's plan, not his own plan. This terminology is similar to the other servants of I am that we have seen in the Old Testament. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Isaiah, and again, David. <laughs> Where the Lord tells uh, Samuel in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel 16, I have chosen among Jesse's sons for me a king. The exact same phrase. Yet another allusion to the Davidic covenant and the correlation here in Micah 5. The fourth thing we see is this ruler is ancient. Uh, both these phrases at the end of verse 2, uh, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days, uh, refer to a long time ago in history, specifically the historical covenants and promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7, which we'll look at here in a little bit. But this is a covenant that, uh, that uh, David's uh, uh, kingdom will be established going forward, that uh, this kingdom will be established forever. Micah here, in emphasizing the historicity of this uh, ruler, is emphasizing and confirming that these promises made to David still stand. And he is building on those prophecies, uh, those uh, covenants, more prophecy from the Lord. This is like the Lord saying something like this, I have not forgotten my promise to David. In fact, I'm going to double down and tell you exactly from where my covenant will be fulfilled. This is a long-expected ruler. So you can hear the people of Israel, God has not forgotten us, Micah. This is an amazing promise. When is this ruler coming? Well, like most prophets, Micah doesn't tell us. He doesn't provide a lot, but he does provide a cryptic phrase there in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then all these good things will come. Well, what does that phrase mean? Commentators are pretty consistent that the term give them up is referring to a period of judgment. Uh, the people are still going to have to pay for their sins. You know, looking back some 2,700 years now, we know that this ruler didn't come in the next year or the next 100 years as Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. God's temple was utterly destroyed and desecrated. They took all of the uh, tools and the covenants, the altar from the temple. The Babylonians destroyed it and took it all. And even more Israelites were exiled from their land. You can hear the Israelites calling out at this time, when is this ruler coming to deliver us? I'm reminded of 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Through the years, there was a remnant of Jews who held on to this promise. Many of them returned from exile to rebuild God's temple, if you recall. They saw then the rise of the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. Uh, many men uh, claiming to be the Messiah uh, rose up to oppress these rulers through those 400 years between uh, the end of the Old Testament and what we now know as the beginning of the New Testament. But all of them were frauds. All of them were defeated. When is this promise of the ruler going to be fulfilled? When she who is in labor has given birth. Clear as mud, right? Much ink has been spilled trying to decode this phrase. And there are numerous interpretations of exactly what Micah was trying to say here. Uh, is this an allusion, maybe, to Mary giving birth to a Savior? 
maybe. Uh, while uh, the people who uh, were Micah's original audience probably would not have understood this phrase literally, uh, it would not be the only Old Testament passage uh, where uh, the uh, meaning or the connotation of a passage would change based on later occurrences in the New Testament and the New Covenant. Maybe uh, this is uh, a reference back to Micah 4, verses 9 and 10, right? Where the suffering people are described there as a woman in labor. This maybe then is, would be a metaphor that could be interpreted more as when your suffering is complete. Or a phrase like Paul used in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son. But I'm not going to take a lot of time to try to dissect this now because we have the blessing now today of knowing exactly who this ruler was and when he came. If you'll turn with me now to Matthew 2, and we're going to look and see uh, the fulfillment of the Micah 5. Matthew 2 uh, was written uh, a little more than probably almost 800 years after, but the occurrences are occurring about 700 years after Micah wrote the book of Micah. Uh, The Assyrian Empire that were facing uh, the Israelites in the time of Micah's writing have given way now to the lighter rule of the Roman Empire, but the Israelite people are still under somebody else's thumb. There is a king again, King Herod, but he is far from a king that would be uh, correlated or related to King David. So let's look at how the New Testament says Micah 5 is fulfilled. Read with me in Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So where is the king of the Jews to be born? The chief priests and the scribes know exactly where he's going to be born. Bethlehem. This Messiah, this ruler of Israel, the Christ, he was known to the religious leaders of the day. Had they lost hope in this promise? Or maybe they just simply didn't believe. They thought these Gentiles coming in were off their rocker. Matthew makes the identity of the Christ, the Messiah, explicit. It doesn't record a single chief priest or scribe or religious uh, figure there going to Bethlehem to see for himself. This understanding of the ruler of Israel is not found just among scholars. We see this also referenced in John 7. Uh, There, uh, the people are coming to listen to Jesus. They're astounded. They, They think he's the Christ, but they think he's from Nazareth. So they ask this man can't be from this man can't be the Christ. He can't be the uh, Jesus. He can't be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth and not from Bethlehem, the village of King David in the south. But little did they know that God in fact had been brought forth this ruler. He had come from Bethlehem. For whatever reason Christ decided not to reveal himself to those people there at that time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sovereignly worked in the political leaders of that time to require a census so that Mary and Joseph, who was miraculously with child, would travel to a small hamlet in the south, about 90 miles. There, Jesus, God incarnate, would be born in a stable with only angelic fanfare and shepherds who were them despised in that society as his only welcoming party. A lowly beginning indeed. The angels are singing, hallelujah, Micah's long-awaited ruler has come. Rescuer is here. But no no, no one even notices. In the immediate context of Micah's time, it is likely that the people of Israel were expecting a a big political leader who would rise up in the footsteps of David, who would come through, clean out all of the enemies in the land. He would establish his kingdom. 
He provided physical security and peace. And it's likely that those under Roman rule at the time of Matthew 2 were probably looking for something similar. But this is not what the Christ, the Messiah of Micah 5, is going to bring, is it? What then does Micah tell us about what the promised Messiah would do? Let's flip back over to Micah 5 and let's see how Micah describes uh, what this Messiah will do, this ruler of Israel. So first of all, uh, just a reminder, uh, this, this ruler of Israel. The phraseology that Micah uses here is yet another allusion to King David, coming from 2 Samuel 5. David, as you recall, was a ruler over a unified Israel. There was no northern uh, kingdom, no southern kingdom. The Messiah for God will once again be ruler over all Israel, this ruler of Israel. Micah's prophecy would be a fulfillment of that Davidic covenant that that a descendant from David would rule forever. 2 Samuel 7, when our days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne and of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Yet the gloriousness of this promise is that the ruler is greater than just a political figure who will rule over the land of Israel. We see that in our second point. As ruler, he'll return his people to the, or his uh, his brothers to the people of Israel. We see there in verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. For those who heard this prophecy in in the 700s, the likely understanding of this would have been uh, the exiles returning from Assyria back to their land. But for those of us today who are not confronted with Assyria, who are not living in Israel, uh, the mystery of the gospel has revealed to us in the coming Messiah that we have a broader context for understanding this phrase from Micah. In this new covenant, that is uh, in the time after Christ's first advent, the meanings and interpretations of some of these terms have changed from what Micah and his initial audience would have understood them to mean. To show you, I would love for you to turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside, speaking, uh, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus himself, while he is here on this earth, is proposing a modified definition of who his brothers are. Those who do the will of the Father. These are not blood relatives, they're not Jewish people, but anyone who does the will of God. The natural implication of this is is that non-Jews could be included on those who do the will of God. In Luke 4, we see Christ directly make this allusion when he reveals himself, um, when he first reveals himself in the synagogue as the fulfillment of the prophecy. I want to show you again, Paul in Romans 9. Flip over with me to uh, Romans 9. Here, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is uh, quoting Hosea uh, when explaining how Gentiles, who are not God's people, can become God's people. Look at Romans 9, verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and, who, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called sons of the living God. Amen. Sons of the living God. A little further on in Romans 10, flip over a page to uh, chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. For the scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Paul takes us even a step further in Ephesians 2 and 3. Jews and Gentiles of equal standing before God. There is no distinction. They are fellow heirs, both Gentiles and Jews, members of the same body, partakers of the same promises of Christ. Unless you think that Paul was the only one to make this uh, correlation, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 says in reference to the Gentiles, once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thus Micah, knowingly or unknowingly, is alluding here to the broader purpose of God's redemptive plan of salvation. Namely, to bring his spiritual family, his kinsmen, his brothers, those who believe in him, to the people of Israel. The people of Israel here being God's redeemed covenant people. And praise the Lord for this, right? It means you and I can now be grafted into the people of God. You are on this verse. I am in this verse. Insert your name there. Zachary shall return to the people of Israel. This is the promise that Micah is making here. This ruler is not establishing a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. He is rescuing and establishing himself as ruler over Israel, where Israel is not a nationality, it's not a people located in a, in a geographic area, but for all those who have come to him in faith. The kingdom is established in Christ, as he himself said in Luke 17, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, referring to himself. Thirdly, we see this ruler standing, flipping back over to Micah 5. And he shall stand. The Hebrew word here has the connotation of, of standing forth, of coming into a state or position. He is standing firm. He is immovable. His rule cannot and will not be shaken. This is an important reminder for the people in Micah's time who are facing almost certain destruction this ruler who is standing forth in Micah is, is driving out his enemies. No one can stand. Christ today is ruling today in the heavens this very minute. And while he stands, Micah says he is shepherding us. Micah's word pictures again point to King David. He was a ruler of Israel. He was described as shepherding his people in 2 Samuel. And what does Christ call himself in John 10? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Shepherding involves loving care, protection, and ultimately sacrifice. And how is this Messiah shepherd? There in verse 4, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. A question I want to ask Micah now after having studied this when I see him in heaven is whether this is an intentional allusion or a statement about the hyperstatic union of Christ. Is he making an allusion here to Christ, this Messiah, this ruler being fully God and fully man? We don't know. And the strength of the Lord implies almost a reliance on the strength that would be needed as a man. And the majesty of the name of the Lord of, God, of his God alludes potentially to this Messiah's divinity. We know today that Christ's majesty and his power come from the fact that he was fully God. And his reliance on the strength of God was because he was fully man. What a reassurance this provides for us. The shepherd who knows our afflictions, who knows our temptations. He shepherds and loves and cares for us and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of his name. We could have no better shepherd caring for us today. The fifth thing that Micah brings out about who this ruler will be or what he will do is this ruler brings security. You see there um, in the middle of verse 4, and they shall dwell secure, they being the people of God. The commentator J.T. Willis puts it succinctly, and I couldn't think of any better way to put it, but this, this language is pastoral and probably refers to a flock dwelling safely without fear of attack from any enemies because of this capable leadership of the shepherd. Those who are among God's people have nothing to worry about. You are protected. You are secure. You are safe. To be this safe, to fear nothing, 
means that all of the enemies are destroyed, are crushed. A reference to this eternal spiritual security we have in Christ. The security uh, comes because of what Christ has done for us. Many different passages come to mind, but maybe Romans 8 is one that you all have thought of as well. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is security. The sixth thing that Micah highlights is that this ruler will be great to the ends of the earth. Would you all be surprised if this is another allusion to David? 2 Samuel 7, part of God's covenant with David, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great winds of the earth. This greatness extends far beyond the nation of Israel. It spans to the ends of the earth. As creator God, his rule is boundless. His works and his power are manifest and undeniable. In the end, there will be nobody who can say that they did not know or heard of Christ the Lord. The seventh thing, this ruler will be their peace. In the immediate context of Micah, uh, we, we have this ongoing war. Micah is here promising a future peace, a lack of warfare. But looking back on it now from our perspective, today in this new covenant, 2,700 years later, this peace is broader than that. For this Messiah brought spiritual peace between us and God. Christ the Messiah would appease God's wrath by going to the cross, sinless, bearing our sins on himself, being tortured, dying, three days later, being risen from the dead, and in so doing, reconciles us to the Father, thus giving us peace between us and the Father. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, what a peace. Last thing I want us to see is that this ruler will be a deliverer. He's going to be a victor. Looking again at verses 5 and 6, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. In the immediate context of Micah's time, this is a promise of God's will, God's people will come and bring deliverance over their immediate enemies, the Assyrians. Uh, Nimrod there is referring to Babylon, uh, which then would have been part of the Assyrian uh, Empire. The Assyrians uh, devastated the land, though. So it should be pointed out that in the life of the Israelite nation, the Israelites never conquered Assyria. They never pushed them back like this. Ultimately, a hundred years later, the Babylonians would come in and utterly destroy Jerusalem. They destroyed God's temple, taking even, even more Israelites into exile. Does this mean then that the prophecy is moot? Is this a false prophet? No, not at all. Micah is writing here in the context of his time, looking at the enemies of the time, the Assyrians. This is the language that his people then would have understood. But similar to how we saw how the term people of Israel changes in the New Covenant. After we see the full revealing of the full mystery of Christ in the New Testament, we have here this meaning that, uh, that this term of Assyrians is representative of the broader scope of the enemies of God and his people. So for us today, where verse 3 means uh, or includes those who are representative of God's spiritual family, being part of one household of God, these enemies here in verses 5 and 6 are not necessarily physical nations or physical armies, but rather the spiritual enemies that wage war against us today.
Looking at Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So as we read this and apply this to ourselves today, replace Assyria here with the enemies of God and of his people here today. Materialism, covetousness, anger, lust, lying, atheism, apathy, hedonism, hero worship, whatever he's here, whatever stands in opposition to God. Yet as we stand against these forces, there in verse 6, Micah reminds us, he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Christ is our victor. Christ is our deliverer. Now, all of these promises that Micah made as to who this Messiah would be are still being fulfilled in Christ today. This is a constant. Some of these have been done. He has come, but these are also continuing to be done. He is the ruler from of old who was born in Bethlehem. Christ is bringing all of his kinsmen, all of his brothers back to his people. He is standing for us. He is shepherding us. He is bringing us security and peace. He is providing for us the victory and delivering us from our enemies. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness in carrying out exactly what he said he would do. So how do we apply this to our everyday lives? What does this mean for us today, tomorrow, next week? Remember at the beginning, I asked you all to keep in mind some of these promises as we hear. I don't know every one of your circumstances, but every one of these promises does affect us and should affect us. Which one of these is most meaningful or impactful for you today or for next week? I think God led Micah to provide these reassurances and these promises to the people of his time during a, destruction, during a time of destruction and despondency. In practical terms, it was hopeless. There was no way the people of Israel were going to stand up to the mighty armies of the Assyrians. I don't know what you're struggling with here today, but I doubt many of you are worrying tomorrow whether you'll be struck down with a sword or being taken away to another land never to see your family again. These promises provide hope amidst despair, confidence amidst doubt, boldness amidst fear, contentedness amidst anxiety, gladness amidst sorrow, strength amidst weakness. Well, I think it is good to know these promises. It is good to meditate on them, to reflect on them, I want us to encourage us to do something with these promises today, this week. The Christian life is not passive. It is active. I wrestled with how to phrase this, and I came up with a phrase partly for shock value, and then I'll kind of explain what I mean by this. I want us to be militant with the promises of God. To be militant with the promises of God. I think it's, I need to be careful with this phrase. I need to explain what I mean by that, right? I think it'd be easy to misconstrue what I mean by this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first show you kind of my thought process for how I came up with this, and then I'll explain a little bit more. So look again with me at verse 5 here of Micah 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. So what is going on here? So as this ruler reigns, there will be other shepherds or leaders. We, hear, we see here the seven shepherds, the eight princes of men. Uh, this is a prophetic way or, of, or a poetic way of emphasizing a, a complete number and then more. So it's going to be sufficient. There's going to be lots of other leaders who the Lord is going to raise up to be his shepherds of his people who are then going to go in the, in the name of this ruler and help him carry out his kingdom. These other shepherds and leaders are going to rise up and they're going to drive out those enemies. It says here they, they shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. They're not shepherding the land of Israel with the sword. 
They're shepherding the land of Assyria with the sword. They have uh, then the, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. The enemy has been driven out of their own land, and they are now keeping the enemy in their own land. In this new covenant, we don't have Assyria at our door. This is now fulfilled in the church. You and me gathered right here today. The church also universal throughout the state of Colorado, the United States, and the world. These shepherds are pastors and elders who are guiding and shepherding their flocks, who are leading forth God's army, the church, the Christians, to defeat the spiritual enemy in battle, pushing them back to the entrances of their land, pushing them out of our churches, out of our lives. Jesus says that even the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, Matthew 16. Now let me be clear what I don't mean by saying that we should be militant with these promises. I don't want you to think that this is a call to arms against actual physical people, right? The church is not to be waging a physical battle. I want to remind you again of Ephesians 6, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you remember what follows after that? The spiritual armor of God. So when I say be militant, maybe think of it this way. When you are confronted with something that is opposed to God, is assailing you, is attacking you, I want you to bring out that promise of God and you strike down that enemy. Romans 6 talks about mortifying the fleshly desires that are enmity with God. This means putting them to death, killing those fleshly desires. This is not a passive action. This doesn't happen as you're sitting in your chair. This doesn't happen as the day goes by. This is an aggressive action, a proactive action. This is something we must be actively doing, putting to death these fleshly desires. Which of these promises again this morning can you use this week to strike down the opposition to God in your own life? Or is there another promise that we haven't specifically mentioned here in the book of Micah that would be relevant to your life this week? Are you in despair? Pull out the promise of hope. The Lord is giving you the promise of hope here in Micah 5. You bring it out and you strike down that enemy that is assailing you. Are you fearful? Bring out the promise of deliverance, of security, of peace, and you drive that enemy from your soul and your mind. I think Micah meant these promises to embolden and provide hope for the people of his day. I think we should use these promises for the battles of our day today as well. Well, I've been focusing on some of the individual promises here this morning. I think all of them are summed up in the overarching promise of this passage. The coming of a ruler who will, be, who will have global majesty and will bring peace and security. I've laid out some of the ways that Christ's first advent has fulfilled Micah 5. But there's also a future sense here in Micah 5 and that many of these actions of the, of the Messiah are not fully complete yet. There are still enemies to God that you and I are struggling with every day. But there is an absolute hope. There is an absolute peace and security promised to us when God establishes his future kingdom. When pain, evil, sorrow, death, and despair will be no more. We learned about that as we went through Revelation a couple months ago. God will establish a new heaven and a new earth. So yes, Micah 5, I want you to see that Micah 5 has been fulfilled in this first coming, the first advent of our Christ, our Savior. But I also want you to look forward because there is more to come. We are still looking forward to Christ's second advent someday, when his full and resounding victory over Satan, 
evil, sin, and death will be utter and complete. Like those in Micah's day, we don't know when this is coming. Is it tomorrow? Next year? 700 years later? 2,700 years later? Our job is not to know. Our job is to live faithful, to use these promises in our day-to-day lives. We can live in hope and faith. We know that the Lord has been faithful in fulfilling Micah 5. We can see the Lord being faithful day in and day out in our lives. The Lord has been faithful. We can know that he will be faithful in his future promises. We can live with confidence that he will come again. He is going to fulfill his future promises. Thus, we can say right along with the Israelites during Micah's time, when is this ruler coming? Come, Lord, deliver us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word from Micah, this reminder of your faithfulness from a ruler of Israel who will be strong, who is returning his people to you, who is providing peace, providing security, of delivering us from our enemies. Lord, may we use these promises in our own lives. Lord, may you strengthen us. May you encourage us. Lord, come. Make us strong. Help us to be a light. Help us to share these promises with those around us. We just ask all this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.